Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Michelle White, and she'll be answering your questions on lesser-known fly fishing venues in South Park. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Michelle a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column of our website. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Michelle White about lesser-known fly fishing venues in South Park. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at www.bajaflyfish.com. That's bajaflyfish.com. Before we introduce Michelle, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Michelle's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Michelle's book, Lesser Known Fly Fishing Venues in South Park. And here's how you can win that. You must be the first person to answer the question at the end of the show. And it could be a two-part question, so it just depends on what I come up with. But the question will be about something we talk about during the show, and you submit your answer along with your name and your location in the text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, and hopefully you'll win Michelle's book. Our guest tonight is Michelle White. Michelle White is a retired international exploration geologist. She owns Tumbling Trout Fly Shop in Lake George, Colorado, and is a professional fly fishing guide. She has been fly fishing and rowing a dory on the great rivers of the West for over 20 years. Michelle is a writer under Michelle Murray and a contributing editor on the masthead for Mountain Gazette and has been published in Discover the Outdoors, uh, Equus Fly Fishing World, Native People's Magazine, New Tribal Dawn, and The Aquarian. Michelle, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you, Roger. I so much appreciate this opportunity. It's, I'm really looking forward to this. Well, good, good. We'll have a lot of fun doing it. So, um, yeah, that's kind of uh, apropos uh, because um, 
Uh, my last show, I interviewed Pat Dorsey on all the areas but the areas we're talking about <laughs> tonight. So this will kind of give people a complete picture of the, um, you know, the South Platte drainage. And it's nice to, like we were talking before the show, a lot of the areas you're going to talk about I've driven by and never fished. So um, I'm excited to learn about these areas, too. And uh, so you'll, you'll, you'll have a fun time educating me <laughs> and the rest of our audience. There's well, a lot let's, of uh, Yeah, yeah, and I didn't realize that. I was driving by, and I'm going, well, probably private property down there. And there is a lot of private property in Colorado and getting more and more. There's a but, lot uh, of, uh, there, the, so the prominent thing you see are the no trespassing signs. And there's very little advertisement where it is public property. So, right. um, you know, in my fly shop, one of the, I'm a cartographer also. As a geologist, you have to make a lot of maps. So I learned how to be a cartographer. So in my fly shop, one of the walls is just maps. And I would just take people back there and orient them and point where we are and show them rivers. And people started taking pictures with their cell phones. And so I thought, well, I'll just, um, I'll just print this out and hand it to people. And as I made these maps for handing to people, it, it ended up becoming this book. Yeah, yeah, and it's a terrific guide um, to the South Park area. And, uh, folks, we're going to try to cover all the areas that uh, Michelle covers in her book um, to the extent we can tonight, but if you're thinking about fishing that area, then for sure you're going to want to get her book because she gives almost step-by-step -step, uh, directions on the access points and getting to the river and where to fish. And I, I mean, it's just it's just really comprehensive. So check it out. If you don't win it tonight, you can order it from uh, Michelle directly. Uh, there's, a, there's a link on our homepage right there on the right-hand side that clicks over to Michelle's website, so you can order, order the book there. So, Michelle, let's, um, well, we had a couple of just general questions. Uh, from Jerry Tommaso in Glenwood Springs, he says, what's the best time of the year to, to fish this part of the South Platte? And maybe before you even answer that question, kind of give people a geography lesson, because we do have people from all over the world listening in, and give them a geography lesson on where this is in Colorado. And oh, I would love to do that because there's some there's some very interesting geography going on here. If you were to draw an X through the state of Colorado from one corner to the other, the geographic center of Colorado is just near Hartzell in the middle of South Park Basin. So that's where we are geographically. But what's interesting is this basin and the water and what makes the water so interesting for us fishermen is uh, this high altitude basin, it's an alluvial filled basin at 9,000 feet. So I want to point out that most people think of the Rocky Mountains, that you drive up to the mountains and you drive up the mountain and you cross over the Continental Divide and you drive down. And the Rocky Mountain range isn't that way. It's uh, like a humpback, like a camelback of different ranges. So we have a range and then a basin, another higher range, another basin, another higher range, and we have these a linear array of ranges, and then you pop over the Continental Divide and you do the same thing going down. And so um, the South Park Basin is a 9,000-foot basin. It's surrounded by mountains, and we are between the Front Range, which is granite, which is Pikes Peak, and a Proterozoic Range, which is the Mosquito Range on the west. And these type of rocks contribute to why the water there has a unique geochemical signature why there are springs there, why the wild trout flourish. 
And it's a relatively small basin as well. It's like 26 miles long and about um, 24 miles wide. And so um, it's right in the geographic center of Colorado, this bowl. Yeah. Now, I always wondered driving through there because, well, first of all, I, I've been doing some research on uh, the Bailey area and uh, Deer Creek Valley uh, for a book that I want to write. But, um, you know, you come up over Kenosha Pass, and uh, in reading some of the old transcripts, there's this view of South Park that you get when you come over Kenosha Pass. It's just incredible. It's breathtaking. Yeah, and, and the people talk about it, you know, 150 years ago, about that same view. So, um, yeah, it's an incredible basin. And I've always wondered, and you seem to be the one to ask, <laughs> was there any volcanic action in that area? It almost looks like a caldera in some respects. but Well, there there is volcanic action, and there is a caldera near the vicinity of Guffey. It's a small caldera. And oh, okay. the Cripple Creek area itself on the Front Range is a diatreme. So there are volcanics and emplacements in there, but that's that's not what created this basin. This basin is a feature of our continent pulling apart. It's a rift basin. The San Luis Valley is rifting, and the mountain blocks pull apart, and then they tilt on their ends. So the mountains are having uplift, and the basin is dropping down. But regionally, this is cresting. And I make an analogy like when bread is cooking in the oven, it crests, and then the ridge splits apart, and the edges of the ridge stick up on either side, and the crust down the middle has like this break in it. That's exactly what this rift is. We have the uh, rift in the San Luis Valley. We have a rift in South Park, and we have a rift in North Park. They're all related to the Rio Grande Rift. And the Rio Grande is a relatively young geologic structure, and it extends up through and is active the Rocky Mountains. And they don't know what the northernmost extent of it is yet as we study it more and more. And this is a feature of rifting. That the bread analogy is a is a really great example. I'm a baker, so I know exactly. I I uh, score my bread, and it parts just like what you're talking about. So uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, well, good, good. Thanks for the geography lesson. That's great. Let's talk about uh, the first. Oh, oh, my question was from Jerry about um, uh, you know this upper area in this basin is really the headwaters of the South Platte, and you know, he was talking about time. What's the least busy time of year to go this to the South Park to fish? It's because just they... starting to get free of ice now, so it's very climate driven. The basin itself is super arid because it's in a pressure shadow. It gets less than 10 inches per year annual precipitation. The water is fed by springs and aquifers that's coming through the groundwater, draining through the cracks and the fissures in the mountains that surround to the west, the Mosquito Range. But it's actually not driven by snowmelt so much. It's driven by the water that's upwelling in the natural springs and the water that's feeding out of the roots of the mountains into the basin. So um, significance is that it's really cold there, icy cold and arid dry. So when we get any snow or ice, it evaporates faster than it melts. They call that ablation. But the water will stay frozen. So we're just now starting to see the water um, in these tributaries that flow into the South Platte. We're just starting to see them open up. And once they open up, poof, they're open. They're not going to freeze again. Now, these 
tailwaters, where the water flows from the bottom of dams, never freezes in these high alpine lakes. So there's a tailwaters coming out of Spinney Reservoir, and there's a tailwaters coming out of 11 Mile Reservoir. And 11 Mile Reservoir feeds into 11 Mile Canyon. So those are both gold metal waters, as is Spinney Mountain Reservoir, by the way. They're um, classified as gold metal because of the density and size of trout per square mile in there. And their gold metal status has been in place for about a decade. The significance is those are winter venues. People come here on their bucket list to fish here in the winter. And they give me calls. They say, how's the snow? And it's like, well, there ain't no snow. Really, I mean, you get up here and there's not going to be, it's very rare to have snow on the ground. If we get blizzards, two days later, it's it's back to dirt and grass. But it never freezes in the canyon or below Spinney Mountain on, on the, what we call the Dream Stream. So those are winter venues. And frankly, that's the best time to go there because we have an everyday midge hatch. And the people who know fish there only in the winter. I'm one of those people who only fishes there in the winter, but I have to guide there, so I do guide. And the other tributaries being the South Fork, the Middle Fork, Terriol, and Lost Creek, they freeze up and they're not fishable until right about now when we've had enough warm weather. So this is um, April. Every year, mid-April, people start fishing those waters because they're flowing. And by May 1st or the end of April, May 1st, all the water reservoirs will be completely boatable. Um, then what happens there, there starts to be runoff, and we get mud in the water, and the water gets really high. And so we have what is our... Um, flood season, and what happens is the trout move up into the little tributaries and the high water and the spring-fed water because those waters are, they stay clear because they're spring-fed and they're not driven so much by snowmelt. So there's places like the South Fork, which comes out of Ontario Reservoir, that you would not normally fish because it's so low and it gets really warm in the summer. But during flood season, it's a great place to fish because trout move up into that, that tributary during flooding because it's spring-fed and it's clear and uh, the rainbows will be spawning there in the spring. And then in the fall, the big rainbows move up into some of the spring-fed water that we're going to be talking about, some of the lesser-known venues to catch trout. So if I were to book a trip here, I'd come in the winter specifically to fish the Dream Stream or the 11 Mile Canyon. Those venues are not in this book because they are not lesser known. And um, then the next best time to come would probably be May. Mid-May to the beginning of June, there's like a two or three week period. Everything's open. Everything is beautiful. Flowers are blooming. Trout are hitting hard on the surface. And the water hasn't started to rise and flood yet. When it rises and floods, you have to go to these spring-fed waters and higher higher water, and then you have this little period of time that, that floods over, water's down and it's clear, and then we start fighting for uh, keeping cold water and water up, relying on rain and spring recharge. So July and August are heydays for fishing up here. You can go anywhere, and the water is high enough to hold trout. August, usually the water starts dropping, and they close off the reservoirs and uh, the water starts dropping in August, but we fish all through the fall. 
September and October are really great times to fish because we have so many hatches and summer hatches, and that's uh, haying time. And there's wild hay fields up here. That was actually the first industry in South Park, Roger. If you start, right. you said you're looking at a book before they discovered placer gold and before the coal mines were in production. The wild hay fields up here and the first trains that came up, especially at Bicomo, were bringing the hay down because the hay up here grows natural. It didn't have to be cultivated. And there are still large ranches up here that grow hay, although the climate is warmer now. And I can imagine, like, after the Pleistocene, when the, there used to be an, an inland seaway here during the Cretaceous. I imagine after that water left that there was just the basin full of hip-high grass up here, wild grass. And um, the remnants of these wild hay fields are what we see and what the ranches are right now. Point being, that was a big industry. That's what the trains first were coming up here for. Yeah, right, right. Well, that's uh, the first area you address in your book is the Lake George area. And uh, so kind of orient us about the Lake George area. What fisheries do we have there to fish? And maybe kind of um, describe each one, you know, where it is in relationship to the, the town of Lake George and how you would get to it and how you would fish it. Okay. So the major artery coming from uh, the flatlands, the airport from Denver, the lower lands, is Highway 24. It comes straight up past Pikes Peak up into the first range of mountains, the front range, and it goes through the towns of, it goes through some little Villages. It goes through a major town, Woodland Park, and then it, it starts going through more little towns, a string of about four little towns, and then Lake George is one of the last little towns before you pop up over the ridge and look down into South Park. In the vicinity of Lake George, if I mean like within about, uh, if you drew like a 20-mile circle around Lake George, there are four fishable reservoirs, one of which is a gold medal reservoir, there are three tailwaters that are well-known and wonderful to fish, and there are four tributaries of the South Platte that flow into the South Platte River. The South Platte River itself flows through Lake George, and then it meets up with the Terriol River and the Lost Creek out in the Wildcat Canyon wilderness upstream of Cheeseman Reservoir. And those areas in that wilderness, that's a roadless wilderness and hiking in by foot. But all of these other tributaries I mentioned are in valleys, uh, the Terriol Valley and the Lost Creek Wilderness that you can drive to, park alongside, and fish. And we have the Middle Fork and the South Fork's confluence is just below Hartsville, near the geographic center of Colorado. They flow into Spinney Reservoir. They flow out of Spinney through the Dream Stream into 11-mile reservoir, and then they flow through 11-mile canyon, and disgorges at 11 at um, Lake George, the town, on Highway 24, continues through, and it, it turns north and heads on down to Denver. So, um, so some of the places that you mention in your book in and around George is uh, the spillway on the South Flat. Um, you want to talk about that? 
Yeah, a lot of people don't know uh, that Eleven Mile Canyon has two dams. It has a dam at the base of Eleven Mile Reservoir and then seven and a half miles of canyon, and then there's another dam before the water drops down into the town of Lake George. And the trout are trapped between these two fish-unfriendly dams. They don't migrate. They don't migrate to spawn. They live in that in that canyon. But where the water pours out, the lower spillway, is um, there's a parking lot. And it's, it's on US Forest Service. It's a free parking lot. And there are uh, paths that you can walk up into the canyon. You can fish the spillway right there. And because the town of Lake George has a private lake, you have to own property to fish that private lake, that lake is chock full of 24-inch pupos, and they swim up river to that dam, and they can go no further. So you can fish that for free without paying a fee, because the fee is to get your car into the canyon. If you park there, you can fish that, um, that spillway right there and get into some big fish. It's also a good place to hunt ducks, by the way. We like to have a cast and blast day. We love cast and blast. And there's a lot of – I discovered a lot of these tributaries in little creeks because when I'm grouse hunting, I follow up these little creeks and I take my tin car rod because if I'm not getting into grouse, I'm going to fish on the way. That's where these maps started. But uh, that lower spillway at, before you go into the canyon is one of the – it's the first um, lesser-known venue in my book here. Right, right. And you also talk about, um, uh, in that section, Lake George section, um, Twin Creek, Happy Meadows, and those are... Uh, That's right. There's a couple flat. little motels. There's a couple little motels and cabins for rent in the area. So you can have a quaint little stay. You can bring your family and stay in a cabin. And, or you can have a really nice high-end little um, motel room. And it's whatever range you want to stay in and you can just leave you can there we're surrounded by ULM and BLM and US Forest Service people who are not fishing with you can go hiking there are well-developed dirt roads and trails that people can hike on or the places that you would be fishing also have other things for people to do so that Twin Creek it actually starts way far away in the town of Divide. There's kind of a little pass there, and it's spring-fed and bog-fed, and it makes its way through a lot of private properties, and its confluence with the South Platte is just outside of 11 Mile Canyon. And the private property prevails on that creek, but they're like a checkerboard in the vicinity of Lake George. There are very well-marked um, U.S. Forest Service signs and private property signs. So you can have some confidence when you turn there where to park and where to fish because it's marked very well where is the uh, public land and where's the private land. Now, that's not a big exposure there. And as I mentioned in my book, and all of these pages in the book show exactly where to park. It shows a red boundary for the um, to block out the parcel that you're allowed to fish and commonly will give you the mile marker and so you have a clue, you know, where you can start fishing and where you can have to stop fishing. That particular place in Twin Creek is only good for fishing when the water is up and flowing. Uh, this period of time I said where it's probably before the, right. 
it's completely spring fed. So after flooding and after high water, when the murky water is cleared up, but before it gets into July and August, because it really drops in July and August, and it's just like hardly a little drainage that frogs would be in. But because it's so close to the confluence right there with the South Platte, big rainbows move up in there. And it's also a great little place to uh, tinkara fish. It's willow-lined. There's little ponds. I have pictures in my book of each place so that when people look at these venues, they might they can not only see a map, but they can see a picture of what it looks like. And that might speak to them or not. This is a place I'd like to see, or oh, I know this kind of a place. I don't like this kind of a place. You know, I give no. pictures of what these places actually look like. Now, is this a, a very a small creek? Um, is it's it, a very uh, small creek. And is it uh, more? Would you tend to do more dry fly fishing there, nymphing, or does are there hatches? Oh, you wouldn't do. Small it's fishing? not deep enough to nymph, although there are some beaver ponds there. You'd definitely be dry fly fishing. You'd be what I call, uh, well, I call it ghillie suit fishing. A ghillie suit is a hunting suit with camouflage on it and little leaves. The trout are really spooky. You're going to get on okay. your knees to get up there and cast just a single fly, like a royal wolf or a terrestrial, or use a tinkara rod to get in there. Uh, very spooky fish, and that's the kind of fishing it is. A little creek, narrow channels, big drops and holes, and, you know, you get a snuffling trout in there. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, Michelle, we have to take a break here, but when we come back, okay, we'll right. be talking with you more about uh, the lesser-known fly fishing venues in South Park. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as an unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak Rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fly fishing per hour than any other method I've ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick boats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. That's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Michelle White about lesser-known fly fishing venues in South Park. If you'd like to ask Michelle a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately. We'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. So, Michelle, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So tell us a bit about your, your business over there and, and your involvement in the, the fly fishing community. This is my fourth year with this fly shop. Um, we've been living out here in, in this area. We live on Wilkerson Pass. It's the Puma Hills. It's the eastern margin of South Park. We moved here from Victor, Colorado. And so we have been fishing here for 21 years. We moved here 13 years ago. And we we needed a fly shop. We always needed a fly shop. Lake George has like four buildings in it. It is a very small town. They were really hard hit by the Hayman fire. The economy just, uh, the economy burned up and went away. So um, 
I felt it was inevitable that I would probably have a fly shop one day. I am a geologist, and I, as I aged, it got harder and harder to work in these really remote places and be sleeping where you are not dry, not warm, and not safe. And I just, everything just lined up, and it was kind of like I was just caught up in opening this fly shop. And because we needed a fly shop there, it was like stepping into a vacuum. It literally has been successful from from the get-go. Just having a place that sells leader and tippet, that's all we needed, let alone flies. So it has taken off. But I am an outfitter. We have guides. Um, my guides hunt and fish here. We live here. We are the local talent. And from this fly shop, I've kind of branched out. As you mentioned, I've, I'm a, a published author, and I used to write regularly for, I'll say, John Fahey. John Fahey was the editor of the Mountain Gazette. And when he sold the Mountain Gazette, I really just stopped writing for the Mountain Gazette, but I kept writing. I didn't have the same kind of outlet. So I ended up putting my articles and essays together in books, and I've been selling these books. And so it was just natural for me, especially in the winter in my shop, to continue writing. And that's how I have uh, the lesser-known fly fishing venues of South Park. And also I've recently um, published the um, Between the Rivers, Fly Fishing Stories of the West, with Al Marlowe and Karen Christofferson. Al Marlowe is a really... Um, He's a well-known published author for fly fishing articles and books, and Karen Christofferson is as well. She owns and operates ColoradoFlyFishing.net, and that's how I met her. I was writing articles for her. Point being, what do I do? I fish every day. I practically always have since my husband taught me 21 years ago. I was a kayaker and a whitewater runner. I met my husband. He taught me to fly fish, and he taught me to row a dory. And literally where we live, we could fish, we could fish every day. And that's that just the way that it has been for us both, and that's why we moved where we live now is for the fishing. And my shop, um, I, in the winter I close at 3, I go fishing, and in the summer I close at 5 and I go fishing because right around the corner from Lake George are these places that literally it's on the way to my house. I just can decompress and have a beer. Um, things start happening, like on Tuesdays, people knew I would Tinkara fish, so we started calling it Taco Tinkara Tuesdays, because we'd go and meet at Happy Meadows, and we'd have a beer and fish with Tinkara rods, and it's just it's just like everywhere, every direction you go here, there's someplace fishable. And right, that's what right. I do. Why don't you tell I us what your, uh, your your domain name is for your website so people can find your website? Your oh, tumblingtrout.com. My website is tumblingtrout.com. I update. There are different buttons at the top. And I update the fishing status every day. I sit down at my computer at 7 in the morning, check the weather, and write a little blurb on what the weather's going to be because it's such a different little uh, niche up here for the weather. Sometimes I post pictures of it because it will commonly be just the opposite of what it is just a 1,000 feet lower like in Woodland Park. They may be having snow and rain, and we got sun. So every morning I post what the weather looks like. 
and then I post what's happening with the fishing or uh, flies, or different patterns to use, or if there's some news up here, I might put the news on there. Right, good. That's on, the, good. Yeah. that's on my website, yeah. Oh, and also yeah, I have a tumbling. Facebook page. My Facebook page is also Tumbling Trout, and I I put the same information on there, but on my Facebook page I put a lot more, I'll say, community posts as well because I'm also on the board of the Pikes Peak Chapter of Trout Unlimited, and I'm very involved in conservation and um, volunteer work. So when we have calls for volunteers or we have events happening, I put a lot more social stuff on my social page as one would expect. Right, right. Well, let's um, let's talk about more of these places to fish in. Uh, yeah, let's talk about in, fishing. In Did we mention yeah, Happy the, Meadows? Uh, you want to talk about that? Yeah, quickly, Happy Meadows and the the Platte Springs Triangle, because we got a lot of gov- ground to cover after that. So we do. Uh, so uh, the South Platte goes flows through Lake George, and it it starts flowing towards this wilderness area on its way to Cheeseman and Denver, and. Um, the Happy Meadows is a two-mile stretch of public land out just outside of Lake George, two miles, that has had a lot of uh, river habitat restoration. Downstream, there's a really nice fishing resort. I think it's comparable to or better than a wigwam club. It is just an, an incredibly nice sportsman's paradise private fishing uh, community. Anyway, those trout can migrate up into Happy Meadows. And then way out in the wilderness area, uh, the Terriol River's confluence with the South Platte kind of forms like a triangle because the South Platte leaves Lake George and the highway goes up towards Terriol, and the Terriol chags away from the highway and shoots off into the wilderness. So there's this triangle, which is the bottom is the highway you're driving on. On one side is the South Platte River. On the other side is the Terriol. And in the middle of this triangle is U.S. Forest. It's a really high terrain with dirt roads. So you can access this confluence out in the wilderness area with a four-wheel drive and driving up on top of this mountain and then hiking down. you got to hike back up is the problem. And there is, uh, there's one trail from Happy Meadows, it's a, which is a pretty nice trail that you can hike around the private community to get down to the confluence area. So that's what I call the um, Platte Springs Triangle is this mountainous area that's bound by the access road on one side, South Platte on the other, and Terriol on the other. The mountainous area in the middle is a triangular shape, and it's four-wheel drive and hike-in access to the confluence. I see. Okay, so that's not for the faint of heart there to get into that. But you get away from people, and people always wonder, how can I get to the confluence? And I show them the maps of my wall, and I say, see these these dots? See this X? Don't go there. And literally, I put Xs every road that is on my maps on my wall I have driven on, and I have used an orange line for everything I've driven on, and there's places where I would not send people, and I put an X on it, and I tell them why they shouldn't go there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, um, so that trail is marked there from the uh, service road? Uh, to, to yes, if you go to Happy Meadows, if, and you follow the, uh, it's just outside of Lake George, two miles. If you go to Happy Meadows, the end of Happy Meadows is at a, 
gated community, the private community of Sportsman's Paradise. But there's a trail that goes through the forest around Sportsman's Paradise, and it's an easy hiking trail, plus it's through the forest, so there's shade. So when you hike this, you're not exposed to the heat of the sun beating down on you. It's a nice walk. It has too many uh, stony steps on it to take a bicycle on it. You'd have to lift and carry your bicycle in a few places. Otherwise, it would be a bikeable road. It is oh, very okay. low grade. It's hikeable, but for anyone, take your own water, of course. There's no, there are no amenities on the far side. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So next up, the next section to talk about is the Terryall River. And um, this has many locations uh, that are accessible right from the road, right? And most people, they're all uh, free access right from the road, park on the road. And none of these uh, require four-wheel drive. There are places that if you wanted to go on four-wheel drive or be a little more buff out, I didn't put them in this book. This book is designed for people who came up here to fish the Dream Stream or 11 Mile Canyon, and there are 200 people there, and they're crying, like, where can I go? And they just want to park next to a river and fish. So there are 10 places on the Terrell River. Most people didn't know that there are public places on the Terrell River because there's so much private property. So um, I spent time with the U.S. Forest Service and with maps and looking at every little squiggly blue line on the maps and going there and seeing how can you get to these places that apparently are in U.S. Forest Service and apparently hold water. And I made uh, these 10 places in this book that you can go. And if there are choices of access, I write in the book, don't go this way unless you want to get out and hike the rest of the way. Or there's a much better access if you go this way. And then I put pictures of what these different accesses look like. And uh, most of these places people might have known about, like a campground or a picnic area. But where it's marked and where the parking is, that's pretty obvious. You see the water. But you may not know that the actual um, property extends twice as far through a canyon that you didn't know about or through a stretch of the river that you didn't know about because you have left the developed part of the property and it looks like it might be private property. And so I've put in fence lines and drawn where you can, uh, where the developed part is and I've also drawn where you might park off the road and walk into the part that is not developed but is public access. And I put notes in here about um, the ranch that you might see next door has a lot of horses that are eating out of large rubber tire troughs. So there's notes in there like that that you can feel a little bit more confident about, well, there's the, there's the pasture. There's horses eating it out of those rubber troughs. I guess All this right. is the place. Yeah, yeah. And you've got uh, – you've uh, put in 10 different locations along that Terriol River. Um, yeah, and I put and, the uh, mile marker, and these have all been verified. And there's there are other places that would somehow compromise the property owner, or I didn't put places in here that would in some way impact the property owner. These are 10 places that that are public access and 
and it's perfectly all right. There was only one little um, issue for a while. One of these public access properties, which I had validated by the U.S. Forest Service where their boundaries were, and a private property owner thought their boundary was somewhere else, and they were really getting quite ugly. So it actually went to a court of law, and my book was used in a court of law, and that the person who was being accosted won in the court of law. And then the landowner, we made friends with him. I spoke with him and talked with him. And he, I showed him where his property was, and he put no trespassing signs up, which one he needed to do on his correct property boundary. And there haven't been any issues since then. And the book also says, please note, there's a, this parcel right here. Don't go past this, this place right here. That if it's a touchy situation, it says that in the book. There's like yeah. only a couple places where it might be touchy. But some of these, like on the Cherry All, the um, two miles beyond the reservoir, when you get to the state wildlife area, there's a parking lot and there's big signs that say, private fishing, no public access, go back. And actually, there is public access. And if you go through and follow my directions and walk through these two gates, there's a little sign about the size of my book, actually, down on the river that goes, public access, you can fish here. The private access <laughs> is from the the private access is from the fence upstream. And from uh -huh. the fence downstream, it's public access. And so those yeah. notes. Yeah, those notes are in the book, and the boundary is drawn, and it says, go ahead, park here, and then there's a picture of what it looks like when you're standing on the water. Yeah, I, um, you know, because that's the feeling I got when I was driving through there. In fact, we drove through there last year, uh, and just exploring down that river from Jefferson down to St. George. And uh, Very uh, prominent, um, no trespassing signs, and by yeah. the way, just for a note, when you leave Jefferson and you're coming down County Road 77 down the Cherry Hall, people think they're driving along the Cherry Hall Creek. They're not. You're driving first along Cherry Hall Creek, which has a confluence just outside of Jefferson with Michigan Creek. And most of the water you're driving along is Michigan Creek, but you think it's Terriol. The Terriol's confluence with Michigan Creek is below stage stop. So it's not until you get to stage stop, which is a little bar, that uh, you're actually on the Terriol River. So um, even though I've listed stop number 10 in the Terriol River, it says Michigan Creek wow. Camp campground, yeah. that is Michigan Creek. It's not the Cherry All River. Right, right, right. Yeah, but driving down there, what I was starting to say is driving down there, it looks like it's almost all private property, you know, so I kind of ignored it thinking that it's, oh, these are clubs or something going through there. But uh, there is quite a bit of access, which is great. Um, tell us about the, the the spillway below the Terry All Reservoir. Is that back well, as a tailwater? It is a tailwater, and I'm going to give you a, a little clue about this. It's not very big, and um, it's stocked with fish, oh. and it's okay. so easy to catch fish there. It's, there's two spillways, actually, at Terriol. One comes over the top of the dam, and one comes out of the bottom of the dam, because there's two spillways there, two, actually, dams on either side of this rock outcrop. Oh, I and see one that in your picture, still, yeah. One of the spillways comes down, and it's a crystal clear, shallow river with um, rocks and moss and drops. 
and you can see the fish feeding and it's just it's mesmerizing to be there and it's well aligned and then this other dam where the water comes out and drops into a big pool and it's really deep and it comes cascading down this lovely waterfall and you can walk up to that pool and sit and catch fish there. I'm telling you that it is so beautiful and it is so easy to catch fish there. We call it the kid's pool. So if we're guiding or if somebody comes in my shop and they've had a lousy day or they haven't caught a fish or maybe they have a six-year-old with them who wants to fly fish, we do our cleanup by going there to that spillway and sitting them down and getting these spectacular photographs of this waterfall and they are going to catch a fish. It's almost impossible not to catch a fish there. Now when that water comes together out of the waterfall and out of the other dam area, they combine and they go through this bend. And the bend is against the highway and it drops down. That drop is full of really big fish. And then it comes around and most people don't fish there because they see these other trout are very obvious. You can park there and see these fish and the fish right there. If you walk down along that bend, there's not usually people fishing there. You don't see the fish and the real fish are in that hole. It comes back to the parking lot and then it goes under a bridge and that's the end of public access. P.S. there are pike under that bridge. And if you get a big fish on in that bend or you're working a fish or walking a fish down, it attracts those pike and they come up from under that bridge. <laughs> they're attracted by the they're attracted by the fight of the fish that you're working. I didn't so think there the river little, was that big a, there for pike. Yeah. Oh, there's pike in the whole river system. It's it's I'll say it's tragic. And I talk with a Colorado State Wildlife about where there are pods of very large pike that we see, and they they won't do anything about it. They say, well, you know that they don't; those pike are not going to impact the fishery. And we see the pike chasing and biting and eating. The pike eat fish head first, so when they grab a fish, they shake it. It's stunned, and they turn around and grab it head first and swallow it. Sometimes those fish just get bit and they get loose, and then, then it's a maimed fish. And right. so I'm, I'm not very happy with the pike, as you can tell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the Internet, Phil McCartney uh, wrote in asking about that, so I'm glad you touched on that. He said, tell us a bit about the role of pike in this area's ecosystem. So uh, I knew they were in well, Spinney in 11 Mile, but I didn't they're know in they the entire in river system. They are positive in the canyon. Uh, we actually rarely see them for whatever reason in the dream stream. They are in the dream stream, but very rarely. Terriol River has pike in them. Terriol Reservoir has little pike in them. If you want to go on a pike expedition, Spinney Mountain is known for their really large pike. We have a 42-inch pike that Tad, my head guide, caught on a streamer from the bank, and we had it taxidermied in fair play, and it's in my shop. But uh, Spinney Reservoir is known for having some trophy pike. And so we take people on pike hunts. We have two guides who specialize in pike hunting. We go out in the boat, and we take them out in the boats, and it's there's such a, a predictable fish. We, we're kind of reluctant to say we can be species-specific, like we will go get pike. But we've got it down. If we want to go pike hunting, we will take you, and you will get pike. And so <laughs> okay. um, the pike is in the whole 
the whole base, it, they're everywhere. But there are pods of them in well-known places. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess I'll bring some steel leader in my uh, eight or nine. Steel leader would help. <laughs> you know, sometimes you catch a pike and you're not prepared for it. You weren't fishing for pike, and the yeah. pike is on because you might have just hooked it on the edge of the bony part of their plate, and the leader's not in their mouth. And you literally just drag them up on the bank, get them away from water, just drag them and walk backwards, and you can land them. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, let's talk about um, next up here. Oh, um, yeah, we should address this. Uh, Mark uh, Rochello, I'm probably destroying his name, from Arvada. He wanted to know about tips and techniques to fishing Terriol Creek above the reservoir. So um, we hadn't really talked about the time what the, of year. I don't know if he's fished there before, so if he's asking from experience. Two things, it depends where you are in the volume of the water. There are some stretches of cherry all that are immediately downstream of some commercial hay fields. So when they're cutting hay, all you got to do is wave a rubber-legged anything in the air and a trout are going to take it. You don't even need a dropper. You just need terrestrials when you're downstream of um, the hay farms in the summer. Now, if they're, if they're not haying and you're earlier in the season, we usually, and I tend car fish as well there, I always do what I'll call a hopper-dropper combination, but basically a dropper and a point fly, and as opposed to truly nymphing or using a strike indicator or using split shot. Because there's so many terrestrials and so many different hatches in that valley. So... If instead of using a strike indicator, use a fly that has, that, like a, a stimulator pattern would be an excellent choice, or royal wolf, and then put something deep enough that you don't have to change your setup to go through the deeper channels. And when I say deep enough, I mean like two feet difference between the, the point fly and the dropper. Instead of like 18 or 15 inches, put some distance this way you can cover the top water. Trout will come out and hit and feed all summer long on the surface on anything. But if you've got a dropper, then you can get some of the um, larger trout that are in the deeper holes. The deeper holes are cooler. Larger trout stay down in that cooler water unless they are feeling like a predator. When a trout is being predatory, they're migrating up and down the river and they're eating other fish. Mm -hmm. So point being, Terriol River, hopper dropper, especially above the reservoir, with a lot of distance between the first fly and the second fly. You want a top fly and a bottom fly. And um, it sounds like there's some potential streamer fishing there. Uh, certain kinds oh, of definitely. I mean, if I'm streamer fishing, Roger, something's gone wrong, because there's so much top action in the summer, and that's what I really like to do. And actually, when I step out of this basin and I go anywhere in Colorado, my first approach to a river is one fly on the surface. That's where I start. I love surface fishing, and if that's not happening, then I'll do a dropper. And if I'm nymphing, then fishing's hard, and I'm just not going to streamer fish. And I don't use eggs or worms, and I know people laugh at me, but the trout really engulf that meat. They'll take an egg or a worm pattern deep in their mouth or sometimes in their throat, and it's just not as easy to uh, free them under the water. Right. Point being that you can streamer fish anywhere in this system any, any day and pick up fish. 
And, yeah, that's an effective means, but it's a lot of work. That's a heavier rod, a heavier pattern. Right. I don't think it has much finesse to it. I streamer fish when I'm on a, in a dory in the boat. And we'll, we'll lop streamer sometimes if, if the fishing action, we want to, you know, pull a big brown off the bank, we'll streamer fish. Yeah. But it just seems to me if you're on foot out and like, this is God's country, this is paradise, pull your head up and look around where you are. Oh, my God, it is gorgeous. Yeah, you know, yeah, need to good. Streamer fishing here. Um, okay, next area, Lost Creek, which is okay. Lost Creek with, is yeah, a true wilderness, as you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, I didn't know how pristine and beautiful it is back there. It's, I'll tell you, it's 14 miles of bad road to get where you want to go there. And once you're in there, the first time I was there, I thought I was somewhere out, like by Aspen, because. The aspen trees are huge and fat, and it's a, it's truly a roadless wilderness in the heart of it. It's coming from the west end out of um, near Jefferson. Right. You end at the Michigan, uh, not the Michigan, the Lost Creek Campground. And if you drive through the campground, there's a day-use parking area for free, and you can park there and walk very easily down to the water and just start fishing there. If you come in from the other end, and by the way, Lost Creek is called Lost Creek in Park County. It's called Goose Creek in Jefferson County. And um, so some people have been to Goose Creek, and they, didn't, they don't know that it's also Lost Creek. If you come from what I call the Denver direction, coming, uh, turning off in Pine Junction, going down 67, and you turn off like you're going to go to Cheeseman Reservoir, you end up at Goose Creek campground and you cross Goose Creek and then a little ways there's a trailhead and it looks like somebody's getting married because cars are parked both sides of the road sometimes too deep for like a mile leading to this trailhead in the summer and you know what nobody is fishing everybody's got their backpacks and they got those poles that you use in two hands when you go walking and nobody's fishing and from that end, Goose Creek, you're closer to Cheeseman, so you can get some different species that have migrated up the South Platte from Cheeseman. You can maybe get in a rainbow, definitely some browns. Just a minute. If you come in from the Jefferson end, you're in the headwaters of Lost Creek. It's only brookies, and it is brookies on top of brookies. And I have twice had a 50 rookie day in two hours. And I've gone there with people who've done the same thing. They're like, I, I got sick of catching fish. I mean, it's just so ridiculous how easy it is to catch brookies. So one of the things you might want to do there if you get bored is take a break from fishing and go hike somewhere. The trail is very well developed, and you can hike and fish and hike and fish and hike and fish all day long. It's astronomically beautiful. Uh, there are beaver ponds there. You can use a smaller rod if you want. You could use a 9-foot 5-weight, but it might be a little ridiculous. If you had a 3-weight, it would be perfect. You can cast for some distance when you get to the beaver ponds. Otherwise, these are willow-bound and a wild berry-bound creek that's very narrow but deep. So if you think you're going like, to step down in the creek to get up on the other side, you're going to have to think again because you might be stepping down the creek uh, thigh deep 
it, it's a deep entrenched creek, and there's two forks to it. The north fork is only accessed on foot from the campground. There's no even trail that goes up there. It's a lumpy, bumpy hard walk, and you drive along the south fork, and you don't even see it. You just see, like, this little valley and this line of berry bushes. The creek is in there, and the brookies are in there. I usually oh. fish from the confluence, which is the campground, down going towards Goose Creek. Now, um, I want you to back up here a second because I was trying to – I know the area you were just talking about really well, but um, Goose Creek, the access is at Goose Creek Campground? Is that where you would access? No, Goose Creek oh. Campground is on Goose Creek, and coming up that road, which is the Mudacat Road, County Road 112, you come to the campground and you cross the river and you leave the campground behind. And you keep following that road, and like in a couple miles, a well-marked trailhead, a big sign that says Goose Creek Trailhead, and it's a right, and you drive on that to go to the parking area. But before you even get to the parking area, you will see lines of cars parked because it's so busy, it's so popular. Hmm. But nobody's fishing. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. And by the way, it's 14 miles of wilderness on foot between uh, the Goose Creek access and the Lost Creek campground. That is a true wilderness area. It's roadless, and it's 14 miles. Yeah, I've hiked about seven miles of that from uh, from the Lost Creek campground uh, in that direction, and then we turned around and went back. So Apparently, yeah. there is an incredibly beautiful granite, an area with granite outcrop that's just yes. breathtaking. Did you go yeah. there? Yeah, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I that, haven't made yeah. it that far because of the fishing. Yeah, the <laughs> you can. I don't make it that far. If I was fishing, That's I would never make it that far. Place. You know, yeah. like Tomahawk is another place. I have never made it to the end of Tomahawk, though I had told myself, I'm going to the end of Tomahawk. I'm not going to fish. Just the water is too good looking. I've never made okay. it to the end of Tomahawk. Okay, I've got to stop you there. we got to take a break, and then we'll talk about Tomahawk when we come back, okay? Okay, all right. All right, hold on. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhipRayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's WhipRayKeyFishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Michelle White about lesser-known fly fishing venues in South Park. If you'd like to ask Michelle a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com. And use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Um, Michelle, I do have some questions that came in on the Internet, so let me grab some of these for you. Um, Treg Owings in uh, Moscow, Idaho, wants to know, uh, how is the wade fishing as far as bank access? And This is almost all wade fishing, right? I don't think there's any. It is. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm writing another book right now called Joe the Smoke and Catch a Big Fish in Technical Water. And the wade fishing here is approaching the bank, keeping a low profile, and then getting in the river. 
Um, these are gravel bottoms and cobble bottoms, and it's a repetitive story of long runs of gravelly shoal dropping down into a deep undercut bank, a bend, and then collecting again for another run. It's like a repeat story on these rivers. So one method is just to go from gravel run and drop, gravel run and drop, and never change your gear. Or you can just like do four different methods of fishing for spend some time there and then change, go around the bend, maybe walk to the next bend and do the same thing again. So wade fishing is real easy to do. There's not strong currents. We just don't have that volume of water here. Uh, there's some places in the canyon where the water gets choked back. And the canyon is not in this book. It's one of uh, it's the gold medal water of 11 Mile Canyon. That's probably the only place where water is choked back and can be formidable. There is no other water up here that is going to uh, knock you down or um, that you couldn't make it to the other side if you slipped and fell. It's just not that volume of water. So you can step in a hole, <laughs> as we all have done that. I'm sure, you know, you're waiting along sure. and you're working a bit. Whoops, I'm up to my chest. Yep, yep. Let's, uh, and it's oh, like, um, you know, three feet wide. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's what uh, made my dad start to take swimming lessons. <laughs> oh, you know, when I <laughs> he, he was an adult alone, and he was he was wading in a lake and went in a hole and he couldn't swim and he almost drowned and he says, "I better go take a, some that swimming is a lessons." Serious, <laughs> a serious and horrible story. Uh, when I'm fish alone uh, on beaver ponds, I wear a life vest. I wear a kayaking life vest because I I have a lot of mobility. My nippers and hemostats are all hooked to my life vest. Definitely when I'm wade fishing the Arkansas or the Colorado, I wear my life vest, and I wear my life vest zipped up. And um, I just, I've been, because I'm a kayaker and a whitewater, I know how unforgiving the river can be. She will take what she wants. And yeah. so I'm very respectful of water. We don't have that volume of water in South Park. But uh, when you're fishing alone, especially beaver ponds, you, you need to have a life vest. Yeah. Yeah. People don't, um, don't may not heed me, but it can be dangerous at beaver ponds. Yeah, yeah. Um, Phil McCartney uh, asked a couple of or other questions here online. He says, uh, I'm captivated by the, the description of this area. What are the environmental challenges the area faces? Well, I was reading about that today. Um, we have a lot of mining historic mining in the area, including coal mining. And the environmental challenges are mitigated, and they have to be mitigated. And so we have historic placer mining deposits. We have a little bit of modern mining going on, like placer deposits. And the most significant thing I want to mention, and your ears might perk up at this, I'm going to say FIN, and that is spelled F-E-N. It's a Pleistocene age bog, and this is where the water has been welling up in glacial scoured out places in the basin. Water that's coming out of the aquifer of the roots of the mountains wells up in these fins since the Pleistocene and has made these bogs that have, over time, as the climate has changed, they've become isolated like islands. There are 24 bogs in South Park. These bogs, have, these bogs have plants and animals and insects that don't live anywhere else on the planet. They are globally rare. 
And only in the last 10 years have we become really studying them and protecting them. Now, since they are springs, spring-fed bogs, they are all on private property because homesteaders came through and they're, you know, going to have a ranch where the springs are, where the hay is. So there are 70 springs in South Park. They are mostly all on private land. They constantly flow. They're pretty voluminous. And these bogs, have they're so unique and rare and important that they're now protected by the state. Unfortunately, the ranchers are aboard. So these there's one bog that you can visit. The public can visit High Creek Finn, F-E-N. It's on Highway 285 between Fairplay and Ontario. And it's well marked, but the highway there, is, it's, you're like people driving 70 miles an hour, and you go, oh, there it is. And you have to like do it, find a place to do a U-turn to get back to it. They're incredible. And the bog floats. So when you walk out to the bog, this bog, the grass in the bog like is moving. The water is underneath, and it never freezes. So there will be ice on the grass or the tundra part, but the water doesn't freeze, so there's cattails out there, and there are fish out there. And I could go on talking about these wow. fins all yeah. day, but they're environmentally precious. And so some of the fins have been ruined because they have been mined for the peat because back in them days, people cut up the peat and make roofs and sell it. And um, there's places where evaporite rock, which is from the Inland Seaway, the shoreline, as it retreated, left these salt deposits. And where the salt deposits dissolve because of the aquifer, it makes holes in the ground. So the salt goes into the water. The bogs contribute nutrients into the water. That's one of the reasons that... Um, South Park Basin, as I was explaining, has a unique geochemical signature. It has wild springs, wild trout. It's really enriched in nutrients, whereas if you get into the Precambrian rock of the Front Range and all the creeks that flow off of there, those are rather sterile creeks with not much organic compounds in the water at all. Going full circle back to he's talking about maybe he's thinking of mining. What are the, uh, he said, did he say environmental? Is that what he was asking yeah, about? Yeah, he was wondering so, if anything was affecting the area. Yeah, environmentally, there are these incredibly precious fins there. There have been reclaimed mines there. Up by Terriol Creek, there was a mining district that has some buried and covered over tailings from the historic placer mines. And those are mostly just at the foots, the roots of the Mosquito Range and the vicinity of Alma and Silver Hills where the mining was going on. But the rest of South Park is this wide open basin and just think hay, hay and wild buffalo. And yeah. that's, you know, not yeah. mining out there. But those fins are amazingly yeah. precious and they're quite a unique um, a crown jewel in the North American continent. Yeah, I didn't know anything about it. I probably drove by that one you're talking about a hundred times, and I just looked it up, and it's actually a nature conservancy property. So there yes, you go. Yes, nature conservancy are the ones who learned about. Well, the people who learned about the fins were making a big cry: fins, 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 protect the fins! And then somebody got nature conservancy to listen, and the nature conservancy went to all these ranches and educated them and asked them 
if they could not graze them, fence them off, and protect them. And I don't know if they get a tax break for that. Uh, I imagine the ranchers up there who are very environmentally conscientious probably of their own goodwill understood the value of these fins and fenced the cattle off of them. And yeah. uh, yeah. there are places where the fins are ruined. I did a geologic tour last summer. Okay, before we go any further, we got to get back to fishing. <laughs> oh, oh, <but laughs> i got to cut you oh, off. <laughs> don't forget fins, F-E-N-S. Yeah, let's talk about tomahawk. We've got uh, we've only got uh, about 10 Middle minutes Fork left here. So. All right. So yeah. the uh, Middle Fork of the South Platte comes down out of these high mountains. And it's crystal clear and it's spring-fed with all these little creeks. And it used to flow out through Hartzell. Geologically, it was captured by Trout Creek and it flows through now this cliff. This cliff is the Red Hill Sandstone Cliff. So it's in a valley, kind of isolated. And you can, there are two accesses to get to it from Hartzell. One access is on top of this ridge where you're looking down, you can see forever, and that's a great place to hike down the ridge to try to get to the end of it where I've never been because the water's too good looking. It's a hard hike down and an even harder hike up. But the reason you'd want to be at the upper parking lot is because it's a good way to just hike straight down the property to get to the end. You want to get to the end because it ends at the Santa Maria Ranch, which stalks with huge rainbows. Now, the other entrance to Tomahawk goes through that uh, water gap, through the cliff, into the valley, and there's multiple parking areas. Tomahawk has a main channel and a bunch of little auxiliary channels, oxbows and, and meanders and dendritic shapes. Every time there's a flood or a big rain, these channels move around. So sometimes you leave the parking lot and you come to this body of water and you go, Tomahawk is really little, and you have no idea that you haven't even got to the channel yet. That's just one of the many channels. It's a great place to go with a group of people because there are so many channels. You can still see each other, and you might have two, three bodies of water, fishable water between you. It's a great place to spread out, and because of all these different habitats there, that's why it's so difficult for me to keep hiking and try to get downstream and get to the water where supposedly the giant trout are. It has mixed species of trout. It's known to have lunkers in it. It's got really tight oxbows, and the significance of tight oxbows is deep undercut banks. Like you might be standing on the bank, and that trout is like eight feet back of your feet under the bank. When they do electroshocking to count trout, they, they can, like, reach in it, and it doesn't end, and they, there's undercuts in the banks, and these tight oxbows are like caverns, and there's some big trout in there. And there's little trout in there, juveniles, matures, and mixed species. And if you go higher up into a follow, you can't because of private property, will interrupt you, but if you go way up in the headwaters of Trout Creek up behind Silver Hills, there's actually greenback cutthroat trout have been reintroduced there, and you can get into them. But it's very difficult to get there. It's four-wheel drive, and it's not in this book because I didn't put anything in this book that requires four-wheel drive or any kind of a investment in a day. This book is like for people who have an hour or two or half a day yeah, to actually yeah. fish because they spend a long time commuting to get there, and they got to go yeah. back home somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of campgrounds in the area, though, where you can camp. Or 
Like you say, in Lake well, George, there's some places, or Hartzell, you could stay at a Well, on my website, right? also, there's a tab on my website that lists every single lodge and cabin and cabin, their phone numbers and their rates, because there aren't that many. And I also made a map in there with little stars showing where you can have disseminated camping, where you can, good places to pull out and set up a camper or a tent or an RV. There's a lot of U.S. Forest Service out there, and yeah. there's a lot of places yeah. to camp. Basically, if you come into the shop and tell me what your conundrum is, we can figure something out for you. Yeah, and you're right in the center of it all. You're, you're right in Lake George then, right, your shop? Well, my shop is. I don't live there. I live out in the boonies. Yeah. I can't stand people. <laughs> yeah, 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 but the shop is Everybody who works for me lives up here, so, you know, everybody in there yeah. is a yeah. local, and they can tell you, you know, literally, where you want to go to hike to look for arrowheads, where can your kids look for some quartz. You know, there's yeah. there's all kinds of stuff. That was to the do other thing there. I think I mentioned to you when we were driving down uh, uh, the road uh, down Terryall Creek there uh, last year. We found some Ute prayer trees and a burial tree up there. So, and it looks Here like you drive down that valley, and it looks this looks like a place where the Ute would have had encampments and. Well, let me add this to your your bucket, Roger. And first of all, I'm really enjoying chatting with you, getting really carried away here. But there are uh, pre-Ute civilization sites here in South Park. And when I was given the geology tour, I met some of these archaeologists. And from the Pleistocene, there was a glaciation, this huge outwash. These rivers were the size of Alaskan rivers, and the boulders that they moved were the size of houses. And then late, the civil, I won't even call them civilizations, Neolithic people that lived here left behind stone places where they lived and stone tools. These are people who lived before projectiles, before bows and arrows, before use. And South Park is full of these artifacts, and so I got to meet some of these archaeologists and visit some of these sites with them, and they are secret, and I won't give them that away because yeah. we don't want people going, and we're still mapping this stuff out, but dang, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's yeah. Really fascinating. Well, let's, uh, we got two more places to talk about here before we quit. Uh, Badger Basin, which is the area above Spinney, right? Yeah, so the Middle Fork and the South Fork and Four Mile Creek, are fishable waters that are called Badger Basin. That is, the state made agreements with property owners that you can fish the Middle Fork and the South Fork and Four Mile Creek, and they call that Badger Basin. And those come to a confluence below Hartzell. And then Spinney Mountain Reservoir, where the South Platte is the confluence down to uh, Spinney Mountain Reservoir, that's called Spinney Mountain State Wildlife Area. Well, there's no signs and there's no, it's all free access. So we just call it Badger Basin because it's just a wide open plain with the Middle Fork, the South Fork, the confluence, and they flow into Spinney. It's upstream of Spinney Reservoir. There's parking places. I have pictures of each parking place. And um, we just call that whole thing Badger Basin. But These are like small uh, meadow creeks, so to speak. It's a wide-open, grassy valley, and the South Platte flows through it, and there used to be the Midland train 
used to come through there, so there's remnants of train trestle. Uh, boy, train bus would love it through here. But there's uh, this part of the river is wild, and it has wild habitat and a lot of riparian habitat different kinds of plants and willows. That means a lot of aquatic insects. A lot of places for the fish to live all winter. They don't have to leave. They can stay there even when it's iced over because there's deep holes. And um, it's just, you walk out to the river, you don't even see it because of the grass. And then you see the river and you're like, where am I going to start? And yeah. there's so much water there that even if you see another car, you're not going to see that person. Maybe you can maybe see that person like a mile up the river. I mean, he's wow. a mile yeah. up the river. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Want to get away from people. Um, that's the place That's to what go. this book is about. So you can, like, yeah. get away from people or go to some place you haven't been before. Sure, um, yeah. There's some places, well, I just... think, that are exceptional good finds in this book. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm getting excited already. Well, let's talk that's about the last is. section. <laughs> uh, wild headwaters. Um, now, this okay. uh, wild headwaters are those above Badger Basin, then? The headwaters are the creeks that flow into Badger Basin, starting up okay. by Jefferson. And when I say creeks, these are little knee-deep, wadeable creeks, rocky little creeks, freestone creeks. Jefferson Creek, Michigan Creek, and Terrell Creek flow into and make up the Terrell River. And those are three headwaters that are in this book, and it shows where to park and fish those. Those creeks go up into the glacial basins. They go up into the U.S. Forest Service. You can just go higher and higher, and they get smaller and smaller, and they're full of brookies. Then coming down uh, in the Fair Play area, uh, most of those waters are private land-bound, so you really have to go down south basin before you can get into some headwaters that feed the South Fork. And so... The South Fork has Four Mile Creek, which is entirely 100% spring-fed, and by other springs that come out of fins, F-E-N-S, Roger, fins, <laughs> feed, feed Four Mile Creek, and that flows into the South Fork, and that's in here. And also, um, trout, let's see, tumbling, rough and tumbling creek. Now, there was a big fire last summer, and they closed off the Forest Service Road. There are other accesses that are not closed off to Rough and Tumbling Creek, and Rough and Tumbling Creek itself is not closed. I went and checked it out. It is still lined with greenery. It did not get burnt. So there are still aquatic insects and trout in there. That said, the way to get to it in my book, I don't know if they're going to open it this year or not. I'll have to check into that. But if you just look up Rough and Tumbling Creek on any map, there, the Weston Pass Road is another way of going on the other side and going upstream Rough and Tumbling Creek. Now, all of these creeks, you have to get pretty high before you get into the brookie range. Some people think they're catching brookies. They're just catching juvenile browns. And the ways to tell is if they have blue dots on them or if they have orange dots on them. And, you know, it doesn't really matter. A fish is a fish. But there are some big fish that move up into these headwaters in the spring and in the fall. They're either rainbows that are going up to spawn or they're browns that are going up to spawn. And the browns will be staying up there resident, uh, predatory, eating any other fish, frogs, amphibians in the water because there's beaver ponds off these uh, some of these drainages that lead into these creeks. 
So when I go up these creeks to fish, I'm going to be fishing this creek and looking for big browns. There's some beaver ponds. I might be ready to fish a beaver pond, but I'm not really looking for brookies. Uh, when I'm at Rough and Tumbling Creek, I'm looking for some big fish. And I have pulled some big fish out of that creek, and I've heard other people have too. So I'm satisfied with the size of the fish down south. Up north, when I get way up into the headwaters of the Terriol and Michigan Creek and Jefferson Creek, especially in the higher alpine where I'm hunting grouse, that's all going to be brookies. And as with, there's some places that are just brookies. And by the way, there's a lot of places you can keep a fish up here if you want to fish and keep a fish to eat. I have no problem keeping brookies. I love to eat brookies. And there's some places where the trout are stocked. So if people want to catch a fish and keep it, it tells in advance we'll take them or direct them where they can go to keep fish. Elsewise, it's catch and release around here. There's plenty yeah. of fish. I mean, you may as well catch and release your fish. There's really no reason to keep it unless you're planning on keep, keeping some brookies. Yeah, yeah. One last question here from Treg Owings in Moscow, Idaho again. Uh, he says, what is your first dry you try, not counting hoppers? Oh, Michelle's favorite dry in the world is a royal wolf. I'm a royal wolf girl. If I had one fly in the world to go fishing anywhere, I'd take me a royal wolf. Those colors, red, black, and white, work anywhere. They work under the water. That's a really good stimulator pattern and then tractor pattern. And that just that color is, you you got to have that. So actually, before I put a hopper on, I'll use a royal wolf. Really? Okay. If, there's a, if I'm going to put something heavy under it, I'll put a hopper on. And by the way, for everybody out there, last cast, sun is going down, your friends are screaming at you, come on, we got to... Put a hop, uh, put a chubby on. All trout love a chubby at the end of the day, and send it downstream, and just pop out your line, and let that chubby go far downstream where you can't even see it, and you will pick up a fish in your last cast. <laughs> there we go, Michelle's final last cast of the day tip. There we go. Everybody oh, a loves a chubby, a chubby yeah. on the last cast. And by then, your leader's short because you've changed so many flies. It's only three feet long, and it's fat as a shoelace. <laughs> I mean, what else are you yeah. going to tie on? I'm not going to streamer fish. So I'll put yeah. on a chubby. My last cast is a chubby. Okay, good. Well, we got to wind it up here. Um, and um, But stick with me, Michelle, because we're going to give away your book here in just a few minutes. We have a few more housekeeping things to do here. Uh, and uh, we'll also be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So uh, stick Fantastic. with us. Uh, lots of stuff to give away, and uh, we'll be right back. Family Ties, that's T-Y-E-S. Family Ties is an organization which uses a shared interest in fly fishing and fly tying to enhance youth development and family relationships. They utilize resources in schools, communities, and businesses, and they invite your participation. Go to their website at FamilyTies, that's FamilyTyes.com, and uh, where Family Ties, where every fish is a trophy and every kid is a hero. Uh, just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on the link and leave your comments, uh, and we'd really appreciate it. Well, that's time to give away a few prizes here. Uh, the winners of our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, by now it's too late, but uh, make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on a 
chance to win some of these great prizes we have. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we're going to give away is a membership to Fly Fishers International. Uh, to learn more about Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org. They are a great organization to support, uh, and they have a lot of conservation efforts. So uh, check them out, whether you win or not tonight, and uh, see what they're all about. Uh, our winner for that is Silas Gray in Missouri. So, Silas, uh, Yay! congratulations. What a great yeah. name. That's a super <laughs> name. <Gray>. Wow. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, Silas has been a long-time listener since probably when I started the show, so uh, I'm familiar with his, his name for sure. Our second one is uh, a subscription, one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. They have a lot of publications and books on fly fishing, so check them out. And our winner for that is Thomas Faulkner from Texas. So, Thomas, congratulations to you, and I'm sure you'll enjoy that fly fishing and tying journal. Well, um, now, time to give away your book, Michelle. Um, Lesser-known fly fishing venues in South Park, and thank you for offering the to, to give that as a prize tonight, so I surely appreciate that. And uh, let me clear my queue so I don't have anything in there. Um, okay, good. Okay, so the question is, <laughs> you're going to like this one, Michelle. The question is, what are the bogs uh, called in Park County? Uh, and you have to spell it right. You have to spell it right <laughs> to win. And so, if anybody wants to know more about that, Anybody can contact me through my Facebook or my website. And uh, my email is M as in Michelle White, as in the color white, white, B-L-A-C-K, just kidding, mwhite at tumblingtrout.com. Because, Roger, they're going to want to know about that. They're going to want to yeah. know that, what you're talking about. Yeah, that. Good. I, you know, good. I had one guest uh, answered the question one time, and I go, no, no, you can't answer it. You know it. I almost did. <laughs> you almost did, yeah. Well, I think we uh, we already have a winner here, and um, it's Treg was the first, Treg Owings, who has been asking questions, so good. Uh, he's paying attention, and um, he said Ben, so F-E-N-S. So good for you, Treg. Yep. Good for you. I think we got a winner, don't you, Michelle? I am just so thrilled that you picked that as a question. <laughs> well, you got my curious. I did not know. Now you've got a, no, a whole other field trip for me and Julie to go check on. And uh, there is a caddis. There at the same time. There's yeah. a caddis that lives in one of those fins that is globally unique. A caddis species that lives in one of those wow. fins. Well, yeah. yeah. Wow. So much to explore in my backyard yet here. So that's incredible. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, Michelle, yeah. it's really been a pleasure having you on the show tonight and uh, having you share your, all your knowledge, which uh, I know our, our listeners will really appreciate. And uh, so thanks for being with us. Well, Roger, this was a gas. What a great show you have. Your people are just plugged into a groovy thing here. I'm so pleased to be on it. And I think that I, you know, I just thank God that we met at the Denver Fly Fishing Show. It's yeah. fortuitous. And I think I'm going to see you again. That was, this is a good Oh, you pass. will. Thank you me. will. Yeah, Thank you, you will. <laughs> oh, should I mention well, that my book is available? Uh, I guess there's an e-book of my, my book is also e-book. Do you want to hear how they could get that? If uh, they want an e-book sure. of it. 
Yeah, uh, they can. Can they get it on your website or? Well, the website is for my hard copy, but they can oh, get an okay. ebook. Come on, you know what an ebook is? It's like for your Kindle sure. and stuff. And uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and Nook sell the ebook version. And I think one of those sites, probably Barnes and Noble, you have the choice between an electronic version or the hard copy. They'll print out a hard copy for you. I think a couple of those will print out a hard copy. And frankly, I looked at it today, and Amazon was like selling my book at a discount. Good grief. <laughs> Just when I was thinking of doubling the price. No. <laughs> there you go. Well, there you go. And uh, we do have a link on, the, on our website uh, to Michelle's uh, website where you can buy the, the hard copy if you'd like and, uh, and our contact her and, uh, and use any of her services. So uh, check her out there and uh, hook up with her if you get over in that part of the, the world. Well, hopefully you have all found, yeah, hopefully you've all found the archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line on our menu, and uh, you'll find all of our past shows, over 290 shows now I've done, uh, which you can search by keyword or keyword yeah. phrase like trout, tarpon, Madison River, whatever you want. And uh, soon you'll be able to look for Terry all and things like that. So check it out. Um, our next broadcast will be May 8th. Uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. On that show, I'm going to interview Karen Miller, and our show uh, topic for the show will be Tenkara for Big Fish. So, can Yay. Karen, yeah, Karen Miller has redefined Tenkara fly fishing, fusing traditional Tenkara methods with American know-how and ingenuity. She's chased and landed large, powerful species all over the globe, including tarpon, bonefish, permit. Uh, shark, barracuda, carp, sockeye, silvers, and chub salmon, as well as uh, plenty of trout on all in our Tenkara rods. So join us to find out how you can use Tenkara rods and methods for just about any species. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing and Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.